0: All right, if you have a Bible or a Bible app on a smart device or perhaps your very own Old Testament scroll, I'm sure they have those somewhere, you can turn with me to Judges chapter 1. By the way, in case you don't know, if you ever come and you need a Bible or you want a Bible, certainly if you don't have a Bible at home, there are Bibles there on the tables as you exit or enter. Uh, Take one, grab one, so you can follow along with us. We are taking a break today from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. I've been enjoying those studies with our pastor, we'll pick those back up next week. But today we're in Judges chapter 1. It doesn't take long for we as Americans to hear the phrase, the land of opportunity or the American dream. You may not know, but it's historian James Truslow Adams who is credited with popularizing the phrase the American dream. It was in 1931 when he uh, wrote... This quote, he said, Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. Talking about this great country in which we live. America has long been known as the land of opportunity. However, as many of you know, times they are a changing, right? Uh, A recent study conducted by the World Bank, I like to bum everybody out at the beginning of the Bible study, but (laughs) a recent study conducted by the World Bank found that the United States is no longer the best place to find opportunity, at least by some standards. Uh, in fact, if you're looking to say start a new business, become your own boss, venture out into the world of opportunity, any idea what number America ranks as? I heard 13. Anybody else? 20th. If you want, if you want opportunity, you're, you're better off, according to the World Bank, moving to 19 other different countries. We were beaten out by including Rwanda, Lithuania, and Belarus. So I know that some of you are here and you're kicking around in your head an idea about some invention or some new business that the world desperately needs, and you're probably going to want to move to Rwanda in order to start it. So just tack that on to the proposal there. Now, that may be bad news for businesses but there's certainly good news for us as Christians. And that is that no matter the time, no matter the place, no matter the era, no matter the difficulties, our God is always a God of opportunity, even if we live in a land of decreasing opportunity. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible states emphatically that our God is not slack concerning his promises. What a great statement. the Bible says, hey, this God who's revealed himself to you and has made promises to you, he is not slack slack concerning his promises. He is not withholding. He is not forgetful or neglectful. That's what he says about himself in his word. In fact, he says that he is at the ready to reach down from heaven and invade our lives with his power and his grace so that he might not only transform us and bless us, but also so that we can become a part of his work all over the earth. James Truslow Adams in that quote, he said, life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone. How interesting that the Lord comes to us and he says, on a spiritual level, I want my people's lives to be better spiritually and richer spiritually and fuller spiritually as I fill them up with my spirit and fill them with my purpose and my power and transform their lives to use them in the Lord's kingdom. And so uh, it is an exciting thing to know that our God is ever at the ready to do this work in us. And he watches our steps and ordains our days and he goes before us leading in the way that we should follow. Every day, you and I are presented with heavenly opportunities to allow the Lord to do this work in us and through us, and we find in the Bible that some of the greatest stories we read there, and the ones that we remember from childhood if you're raised in a Christian home, or the ones that you remember the most perhaps when you start reading the Bible at any age, are stories of examples of God's people seizing opportunities in faith, and when great victories for the Lord and for his kingdom. We think of David slaying Goliath as a young man, saying, hey, what are you guys doing? And they say, well, there's a giant out there. We can't go fight him. He's like, of course you can go fight him. Let's go fight him. You think of Jonathan taking the Philistine garrison with just he and his armor bearer. He says, well, let's see if the Lord wants us to do this. We think of Peter sharing a simple sermon on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people giving their lives to the Lord. You think of Philip joining himself to a chariot on the desert road and talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Again and again in God's word, we see examples of people being filled with the Holy Spirit, realizing that the situation and the circumstances that they were being uh, presented with were an opportunity from the Lord To have their lives ministered to and then to minister to others. And having taken those opportunities, they were then used to change lives and sometimes whole nations for the cause of Christ. You know, church history records that the Ethiopian eunuch returned to his homeland and that there was a great harvest of souls there, a revival brought about perhaps by this one convert that Philip talked to from the Isaiah passage there, and told them about Jesus and told them about salvation. We think about Peter. Uh, One simple sermon and one simple opportunity was used by God to change the eternities of thousands of people impacting their families, their communities, impacting the whole world, really. We think about David and Jonathan and how when they took small opportunities and said, hey, this is from the Lord, I'm gonna walk in this, and they brought deliverance to their nation from oppression. We have two little texts in Judges chapter 1 that each show a person living their regular life and then coming to a moment of opportunity for their lives to be profoundly impacted by God. And we get to see what they did and learn what we can do if we also want to enjoy the influence and impact of God's will in our lives. And so God has been very upfront. He says, my will is to invade your life, is to fill your life, is to be involved in your life. I'm ever at the ready, not to withhold good things from you, not to withhold my grace or my purpose from you, but to fill your life with life more abundantly, and now we see how we can cooperate with that work that the Lord wants to do. Let's set the scene as we get some context for our passage. God's people were... Finally, in the promised land after 400 years of slavery and 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, at least most of them were anyway. Two and a half tribes had disdained the promised land and told Moses earlier on, they said, Hey, we don't even want to go in there. We'll hang out on this side of the Jordan. That didn't turn out well for them. Uh, But most of God's people were in the promised land, and there was a lot going on all over Canaan there. Joshua had won wars in Canaan, significant wars, defeating the armies. He divided the land and left it ready for each tribe of Israel to fully conquer. And when we get to the end of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges here, we find that Joshua has died. Some of the tribes are busy taking their land. Some of them aren't. Some people are following God and obeying him. Some aren't. And spiritually speaking, it's really a lot like the landscape that we have today, the the world that you find yourself in. There's people outside of the family of God, and then you have the church, and within the church there are some people who are living as disciples and submitted to God's will, and then there are other people who aren't bearing fruit, who aren't doing those things. And in the end, each person, each family has the same choice that Joshua laid out to the Israelites at the end of his life when he called them all together and he said, look, Here's what's going on. Here's what God has said. Here's what he's offered to you. Some of you guys are following him. Some of you aren't. But here's the deal. He said, choose this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And what we see contextually is that the wars had been won and that the major coalitions of armies had been routed and defeated by God and his power, and now the people were to occupy the land of Canaan. And devotionally, this is also where we find ourselves as servants of the living God. Sin and death have been defeated on the cross, Our king has reigned victorious over those great enemies. And now while we wait for the return of our king, we're told specifically in the parable of the 10 servants in the gospels that as God's people, we're to occupy till he comes. Living as citizens and servants of the kingdom, waiting for the return of our Lord. And so that's the setting. That's the backdrop of our two little stories. The first starts in verse 12. And there we read this. It says, and Caleb said... Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, he took it. And so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. You really have to love Caleb. He's a favorite kind of guy. Uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful hero, wonderful example for us in the scriptures. He's an incredible inspiration for us of a faithful servant of God. But he can also serve for us today as a type of God himself. Remember, Jesus said, he said, I come in the volume of the book. Every page of God's word speaks to us of the person, the nature of, of our Lord, of our God. And we can look in these stories and oftentimes see types or pictures of what God is like by seeing some of these examples. And, and here for this morning, Caleb serves as an, an example of what God is like in his heart and in his character. First of all, he's a champion. No enemy could stand before Caleb. He was victorious. And that is, of course, characteristic of our God. He's a man of triumph and victory. And we see here that like our God, Caleb was willing and excited to share victory with anyone who wants in. This is a pretty remarkable thing. Think of Alexander the Great or Napoleon or some of these other great conquerors. Do you think they were inviting anyone to say, hey, share in the victory with me? Who wants to take a city? Go ahead, go and take it. I'm gonna extend that blessing to you. But that's exactly what Caleb did, and that's what the Lord does. The Lord is excited to share his victory with anyone who wants in, You know, Caleb is this great warrior. He knows he's gonna conquer his mountain and his region. He knows the Lord is able and is working through him and that nothing could stand against him. And so he sends a call out to all of his men and he says, hey, whoever wants a piece of this with me, whoever wants to win victory with me, come and get it. It's open to anybody who's willing to respond. You know, our God, he has no need of us. He owes no debt to us. And yet, he not only saves us from our own sin, which would be remarkable enough, and he does save us from our sin, but he doesn't just pull us out of the mire and say, all right, I saved you from your sin, go about your way, I don't owe you anything else. He says, well, you know what, how about you come into my household and I'll make you one of my servants. Well, that would be an amazing thing if that's all that the Lord did, but he goes beyond that. He says, not only are you servants, I'm gonna make you sons and daughters in my kingdom. You're gonna be co-inheritors with my son, Jesus Christ. And even more than that, the Lord in his great grace extends to us victory. Paul says in the word that we are more than conquerors thanks to the love of God. And so because of Jesus' victory on the cross, God is now able to extend to us victory over sin and death and hell. And he says, hey, who wants in? Who wants to be a part of this? We are more than conquerors because of the love of God. Now, we also find in these verses that like our God, Caleb was a man of great generosity. He offers his only daughter to any man who would come and attack this city in his territory. What an amazing thing to realize that God a very God withholds not even his own son, but will offer him to anyone who desires to be saved. He spared not his son so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And now he offers, Jesus offers himself as a son to us and says, hey, who would be part of the bride? Who wants sin? Never saying, no, you can't be a part of the church. You can't be a part of the family. He says, anyone who comes to me and asks for mercy and believes on my name and receives me, to him will be given the right to be called a son or a daughter of God. Our God is a great and generous God. Well, Othniel is the man who rose to the occasion on that particular day. He would later become the first judge of Israel. He was a man who really took hold of this opportunity. He was a cool guy, but he's not our first example. It's Caleb's daughter daughter who we wanna focus on. Look at verse 14. It says, now it happened when she came to him, speaking of Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing, since you have given me, Land and the South, give me also springs of water, and Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, this at first feels somewhat inconsequential of a story, but remarkably, this story is given to us twice in the Old Testament, once here and once earlier in Joshua, which clues us into the fact that there's something the Lord wants us to notice here about this situation. There's something God wants us to see about Axa's heart and her request. You know, obviously every text in the scriptures is important, obviously, but when something is repeated for us and this story is repeated almost verbatim in two separate books, well, God is trying to get our attention. He wants us to think about what's going on here. And so let's take a look at this situation. First of all, It's clear as a woman, acts as she was a person of passion and of boldness. I mean, she had some moxie. You can kind of read that from the text and in between the lines. But we also see that she was content to be at the mercy of her father and submitted to his will. We we see no rebellion in her. We see no friction in her. Now, to us, the idea of offering up our daughters away like this is, is somewhat old fashioned or foreign. It's certainly not a part of our culture. And I think, I mean, I'm glad for that. And ladies, I'm sure you're pretty glad for that as well. Uh, but even though this was more common in the Old Testament era, Axa was still a real person with real feelings, a real head on her shoulders, the ability to make choices, the ability. I mean, there's plenty of times in the Bible where people said, yeah, I'm not doing what you're asking me to do. I'm gonna go do whatever I want. I mean, people still had the same kind of heart that we have today. And we see, though, that even though she had passion and boldness and that she was ready to get things done while she was submitted to the will of her father. And we see that she didn't make demands about who her husband would be. She didn't complain about Caleb's plan for her life. She demonstrates a profound trust in her father throughout this story, She knew he was good, she knew he was generous, and she recognized his position and she was content to submit to him. And this is a very important thing, I think, because we're putting ourselves in her place and we've seen that Caleb is a type for us this morning of the Lord our God and the question then becomes this, am I surrendered to the will of God in my life? Even when he's making a decision for me that I want to make for myself? That's the question each one of us has to ask. Am I content with God's plan and his direction for my future? You know, 1 Peter 4 verse 2 tells us that we should no longer live after our own desires, but instead for the will of God. That is a crazy statement from God's word, where the Bible comes to us, the Holy Spirit comes to us and, and, and looks at us in the face and says, stop living after your own desires and instead live for the will of God especially when God's will does not overlap with your desire or your plan for your future. Because we all have plans, we all have desires, we all have wants, we all have dreams, and that's fine, except for when those things are in conflict with what God is directing us to do. And the Lord comes to us and he says in his word, "You know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And here is my plan for your life so that you might have life more abundantly. And when the Father comes to us with his plan and his direction for our lives, our responsibility is to submit to it. Not to say, well, I'm gonna do my thing and your thing. I'm gonna marry this guy over here and the guy you're giving me away to. That doesn't work. The Lord says, stop living after your own desires in 1 Peter and instead the will of God because as John tells us in his first letter, he that does the will of God abides forever. And so Aksa is submitted to the will of her father. She's given in marriage to Othniel. And in her request here, we discover that she sees her new situation as an opportunity for her and her husband to do what God wanted them to do. Now listen, the the Lord had told his people for more than 40 years now, as they left Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness, he had told them again and again that he wanted them to go into this land, conquer it, occupy it, settle in it, and grow there. He says, hey, I'm giving you this land so that you can grow there and bear fruit there and multiply there and settle there. And here we see that Aksa is beginning a new chapter in her life outside of her dad's house, And she takes the opportunity to obey God and fulfill the commission he had given them. Caleb apparently had gifted the newlyweds some land in the south, we're told, a field, And now she comes to him to ask for something more. Now she's not coming as a spoiled, entitled princess. It's not like she's that girl on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory who always gets whatever she wants and everything she sees, she wants that and the wealthy dad just shells out for her. That's not what she's doing. Notice what she asks for. She's coming as a servant, she's coming as a soldier. She comes and she asks for one very simple thing. She says, give me water. You gave me a field, now give me water. Why? Well, the land she had received, we're told, is in the south, and we know where Caleb's allotment was, and so this is identified as the Negev. And the Negev is an arid area. It's not exactly Malibu or San Diego or all the kinds of places newlyweds want to live, okay? I mean, this is not a resort community. It's a desert. Um, So Caleb, he said congratulations, you're getting married. Here's the field. Here's the little plot of land I have for you guys. I'm just gonna give it to you. It's there in the South, and it's a desert. But she didn't come to her dad and say, hey, uh, Pop, <laughs> we didn't really register for desert." We registered more for a better climate. We registered for something that was a little more established, a little bit easier. We were hoping for the duplex there on the other side of the mountain. She didn't do that at all. She didn't come and say, bless us with a better town or bless us with better land. Put us on the other side of your mountain where stuff is nicer or easier. Instead, she came and asked for a gift that would enable her to develop the desert field into a productive garden. Very interesting thing that she asked for. She said, bless me with water so that I can do something with this field you gave me. She doesn't ask for a different field. She doesn't ask for an easier plot of land. She doesn't ask for a uh, a more turnkey situation. She says, hey, just give me water so I can take this desert and make it into something. She says, I know that God wants us to grow and settle and occupy and fill this land, and so I'll take this land, which seems arid. It seems like the desert. I want you, the Father, to give me water so that I can do what I've been asked to do. And this is very inspiring to me. Now, from my research, it looks like archaeologists believe the closest water would have been just a little bit less than two miles from her region, from her little field, And certainly she would have known this. Uh, It would have been a lot of hard work to truck water from the springs to her new home. When we go to Disneyland or, you know, when we go on little hikes or something and we bring a backpack and we, you know, you throw water bottles in the backpack and after about 10 seconds I think, okay, I'm done carrying this water. I don't need water that bad anyway, right? We can pay $90 for a bottle of water in Disneyland, so, but carrying water is tough work. And she knew that. She's not a dummy. She knew how far it was. But she came and she said, yeah, that's fine. I'm happy to carry. I'm happy to truck it. I'm happy to shoulder the way. Just give me what I need to do so that I can do what God has asked me to do. You know, when we're studying through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 on Wednesday nights at Ignite and talking about spiritual gifts, and Paul says, hey, desire gifts that will edify the church, that will build up the church. Not gifts to uh, magnify ourselves or gifts to make us look better in the eyes of people. Paul says, hey, when you go to the Father, ask for a gift that will enable you to build up the church, that will enable you to fulfill the commission that God has given you. And this is exactly what she's doing. Give me water. I don't need a different place to live. I'm not gonna complain about what you've given me. I just want water so I can cultivate this desert land and transform it, bringing streams to the desert, as it were, and bring fruit out of this field that was given to her. She had a heart like her dad's. Most of you know things about Caleb from studying his life. As one of the two faithful spies 40 years earlier, he was given the pick of the land. And having scouted out and seen the Canaanite land 40 years before. He came to Joshua there in the middle of the book and he said, hey, we're in the land now. I want my mountain. He didn't ask for, you know, the easiest spot or the place with the least amount of the work. He didn't even ask for the beach property. You know, some of those passages in like Numbers or Joshua where they're talking about the division of the land, it's a little bit slow reading or slow listening as we're going through those books. But as we kind of file things away, we we can piece stuff together and you look at the whole land of Canaan that the Lord had promised to his people, and you see that some of it was on the coast was the Mediterranean Sea, and, and, and these wonderful, lush places where, like, you know, millionaires today go to vacation, and Caleb didn't come to Joshua and say, hey, yeah, I would like the coast where everything is good and nice and easy all the time. Now, Caleb came to Joshua as an 80-year-old man. He said, give me my mountain. He said, I found a mountain over here. There are fortified cities filled with giants. I would like that mountain. I would like to go and take that for the Lord and fulfill my commission in maybe the hardest place that I can. And Joshua said, knock yourself out, man. That's all yours. And we see that she had a heart like her dad's. She didn't ask for the easiest spot. She didn't ask for a place with less work. She said, give me water so I can work this desert into a fertile field. And notice this, Caleb did it. He did did what what she asked. And he didn't just give her one pond or one well, but he gave her multiple springs, upper and lower. What does that tell us about the character of God? It tells us that our God is not withholding. When God asks us to do something, he knows that we need equipping to do that. He says, hey, go and make disciples. Well, how do I do that? He says, you do that as I help you, as I fill you, as I empower you and give you gifts. He says, build up the church. Okay, how do I do that? He says, by giving you gifts, by, by having that living water go into your heart and come out like rivers. And when we go to the Lord and ask for what we need in order to do what he's asked us to do, he's not withholding. He's not stingy at all. He is a God of abundant supply and generous grace for his people who seek to please him and serve him with their lives. He gave her multiple springs, upper and lower. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna give you all the water you want. You'll have to carry it. You'll have to truck it. You're gonna have to work. But you have all the water you need to do what you've been asked to do. Psalm 84, verse 11 says this. It says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so when we seek to do what God has asked us to do in his word or by his spirit, he will not deny what we need and what we require to succeed. In our spiritual lives and in our service to the Lord, the Bible does say that sometimes we have not because we ask not. And so if you're seeking to serve the Lord, if you're seeking to to follow in the commands of the Lord and you're finding it difficult to bear fruit or to get traction, one thing you can look within and evaluate is whether you've asked the Lord for that equipping. Because the Bible says, hey, sometimes you have not because you ask not. Now we must ask according to God's will and according to his purposes. But when we do, the Lord supplies. It's not that the Lord is a vending machine or a magic genie. Or that he has to, you know, grant us, you know, if we say certain mumbo-jumbo things, he has to give us health and wealth and everything that we wanted. That's that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. What the Bible does teach is that when we're in line with the heart of God, and when we're seeking to please him and to do what he's asked us to do, he will not withhold any good thing that we need in order to do it. And so we can take a great cue from AXA about having a heart in line with the Lord, submitted to his will, eager to take opportunities in life to accomplish what he has set before us to do, right where we are. And that's an important thing as well. Everybody wants to escape. Everybody wants to, you know, whether you're here in Hanford or whether you're somewhere else or you're 100 years from now or 100 years from now if the Lord tarries, everybody, there's that seed in the heart of man that wants to escape and thinks, well, if I was just somewhere else, if I was just in a different situation, an easier situation, a less whatever situation, well, then I could do what God wants me to do. But notice, right where she was at, she was ready to do the work not thinking that if things were easier or if she was just located somewhere else, then she could bear fruit. But she saw the potential in her desert field. And the Lord wants us to see the potential around us in our community and in our families and our sphere of influence right now. We see that Axa was a woman of faith and courage. She was willing to get off of her donkey and humbly appeal to her father. And I was thinking about this and I... Y- Sometimes we just need to get off of our own high horses, thinking that we know what's right and we have what we need and this is my plan and this is how it's gonna work and oh yeah, I'm, I can do this and I can do that and sometimes we need to just stop and get off of our horse and humble ourselves before the Lord and say, hey, what do you want me to do? Here's what I need, here's what I've been asked to do and I, and I don't have the tools that, that I need to do it. Father, will you equip me with what I need? I'm gonna come and humbly submit to you and, and see what you answer in return. She's such a great inspiration for us about how we go before the Lord in a heart that is ready to receive for him so that we can grow and serve in the field he's given us. Now we have another quick example about opportunities in this chapter. It's verse 22 is where it starts. It says this, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel The Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. Now, Luz was an interesting place historically, especially at this time. God had appeared there. It had been one of the places Abraham had lived and stuff went on there. It was the site where Jacob had his famous vision of the ladder reaching to heaven and angels ascending and descending. Jacob had then renamed it Bethel after that. And and he had set up a pillar signifying what had happened. And it seemed to be a place that was significant to the Lord as well. It seemed to be a place that was kind of on the Lord's map as well. In Genesis chapter 31, the Lord says, I'm the God of Bethel. And so it's a very interesting place uh, in this point in time. But you see that the other inhabitants of this city, they never really got on board. They certainly would have known the stories. They would have seen the pillar. They would have heard about what had happened and how, you know, this, this group of people said, yeah, our God appears to us here and speaks to us here, not metaphysically, but he appears to us and gives us visions and talks to us. And here's the pillar that our forefather made, you know, to, to show what had happened. And they would have been familiar with these stories about this God speaking, but you see they had no interest in the God of Abraham. I think because of the culture we live in, it's easier for us to think of you know, unbelievers as atheistic, but these Canaanites, they weren't atheistic. In fact, in the whole of human history, a very minuscule amount of people have identified themselves as not believing in any God. It's kind of a newer development, and so we're kind of more used to that, that being the sort of cultural party line that, ah, we don't believe in God. It's silly to believe in God because that's a prominent idea in our culture, which is a sad thing. But realize here, these Canaanites, I mean, they worshiped all kinds of gods, gods of wood and gods of stone, gods of the heavens and gods of the earth. I mean, and none of these gods ever really spoke to them, I mean, I'm sure they wanted them to. All of a sudden, this group of people comes along, these, these Hebrew people, and they said, hey, this city, our God appears to us here, and he speaks to us here, and he gives us, vi- gives us visions here, And the people who live in that city said, eh, we're not really interested in that. We don't really even care about your stories. We kind of want to wipe the record of all of that. This is called Luz, and we just want this to be the place where we do our thing, and we'd rather you not talk about your thing. And so, for that reason, this city demonstrates to us the tension between what is godly and what is worldly, how the world wants to do their own thing, define their own life, and how the Lord wants to invade where we're at and show us that he cares about our lives and wants to speak to us and and transform where we're living. And so, it's an interesting picture of the tension that we find ourselves in as God's people here in a fallen world. Now, look at verse 24. Verse 24. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will show you mercy. Now, the Israelites weren't dummies. They had become quite expert at uh, both espionage and conquest, but they could not find the way into Bethel. They just couldn't find how to get in. This is very interesting to me. And they approach this man who's coming out of the city. This guy's kind of living his uh, little life, doing whatever he's doing. And he comes outside the city one day and all of a sudden these people walk up to them. We know that everybody throughout the land had heard of Israel even before they got to Jericho and that the whole land was filled with terror of them. And then Joshua had led these long and, and decisive wars through the land. And so certainly he knew what was up and who these people were. And so he's living his regular life and all of a sudden these, these Hebrews come up to him and they say, hey, here's the deal. The Death Star's parked outside of your city. There you go. I tried. <laughs> and, uh, and they say, hey, we are willing to give you an offer of mercy. Now my guess, this is a bit of speculation, but my guess is that these spies explained to them how they treat people who ask for mercy. Because there were lots of examples for us of this. We think of Rahab and her family. We think of you know, other people from Canaan who, had came, who came and some of them tricked the Israelites, or, but just asked for mercy and said, hey, we don't want to be destroyed. And when people said, we don't want to be destroyed, we want to call on the mercy of your God and follow after him, they were granted mercy. And not only were they granted mercy, they were brought into the great family. They were brought into the people of God and, and they were given opportunities to live a new life. And so this Luzite, he's our second example because he's presented with an opportunity not only to be saved from death, but an opportunity to have his life completely changed by God, rerouted by the Lord and his plan. Think about Rahab and Jericho. She went from being a harlot in her old life to calling on the name of the Lord, receiving mercy, and then becoming part of the line of the Messiah, bringing the Savior to the whole world for us. And we should realize that the Lord's opportunities that he brings to us, whether you're a believer or not a believer here today, when the Lord God comes to us with an opportunity, to work in our lives, to bear fruit in our lives, to do something with us, they are not meaningless obligations. When the Lord comes to you as a Christian and says, hey, I have an opportunity for you to minister to someone today, it's not a meaningless obligation, not at all. There are chances to let God change our lives to the better and minister to people, perhaps changing their eternities forever. As a Christian, when the Lord comes to you with an opportunity to receive God's ministry or be used by him to minister to someone, what he's offering you is a chance to have some new fruit born in your heart and to be refreshed with his living water. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this nameless Luzite guy, he's an even better example for you because you are facing death apart from Christ right now. You're facing destruction. You may not know it, but you are. You're going about your life You know, cruising around like this guy was. And all of a sudden, God in his grace has come to you and he says, hey, there is death waiting at the door. We are coming to wipe out this city. But if you want mercy, you can have mercy. But you have to surrender to the Lord, receive his plan, and let him in. What an interesting picture this guy is for us. If you want the Lord to save you and give you his abundant life and work in your heart, if you want the Lord to use you for his purposes and fill you like he wants to do, well, you have to grant him access in. He doesn't force his way in from the outside. You have to let him in from the inside. That's what the Bible says. And so for all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, the Lord is knocking and sending out these opportunities. And if you're not a Christian, well, today, the Lord is knocking to offer you salvation. You have the opportunity to repent and receive the mercy of God because it is appointed once for men to die and after this comes judgment, the Bible says. But no one has to go to hell. The Lord says that, hey, he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And if you are willing to surrender to God and receive his mercy and allow him to come in and take over your life, then he will give you mercy and make you a part of his family. If you are a Christian... You have many, many opportunities as well to receive what God wants to give you, to be used by him. Remember what happened in Isaiah's vision? The Lord is there as the vision of heaven and the Lord says, hey, who's gonna go for us? Who will go and be used? And Isaiah, there's a pause until Isaiah shouts out, yeah, here I am, send me. That's what we're talking about on a spiritual level. The Lord presenting opportunity to be used, to be ministered to, to be filled up, to be a blessing to others and to have your life further completed and transformed by his power. But he waits for us to say, yes, yes, here I am. Go ahead, I've opened the door so that you can do what you wanna do. Today and tomorrow and until the Lord returns, God approaches you like he does this luzite, and he will present you with opportunities to receive his grace and be a part of his plan. Now here's how this fellow responded. So he showed them the entrance to the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And when the man went to the land of the Hittites, he built a city called its name Luz, which is his name to this day. This guy's kind of interesting. It's a sad story, really, when we step back for a moment, but... He's an interesting guy. On one hand, he clearly believed that the Israelites would indeed conquer the region. You know, there were some people in the land of Canaan who laughed at the Israelites. I'm thinking of like Jerusalem. They say, yeah, when David comes along, they say, yeah, the lame and the blind could defend this city. You can't get in here. And then David conquers the city. But this guy clearly thought, you know what? These people are gonna be victorious. They're gonna conquer the city. I better take this deal. I believe that their God is with them and that our gods are not gonna protect us. So sure, come on in. And so he believed on one level, and he was happy to receive deliverance, and he also clearly believed that they would honor their promise to show him mercy. And so he took the deal, and he could have become another Rahab character. He could have been joined into the great family of God and grafted into the Lord's plan like Rahab was, but after encountering encountering this mercy and this grace, he decides not to stay with the people of God, but instead to just move out of town. His house was still in Bethel. Whatever farm or job he had there would still be required. I'm guessing they didn't burn the town. They didn't destroy the town. They just killed the people there. But once the Israelites were in, he packs up, heads to Hittite country, and builds another city called Luz. Now, let's think about this for a minute. This is just stupid. Why? Well, because the Hittites and their lands were also on the list for conquest. He thought he was escaping this God and his people, He didn't go far enough because you can't escape God or God's plan. He says, well, I'm going to go down to Hittite country. And yeah, they were on the list too. It's possible he had another conversation like this a while later. Uh, He thought he was getting away from the Lord, but he couldn't. By looking at what he did, we can see a little bit at least of his motivation. I'm sure he was happy for the mercy he had received, happy for his life. But he clearly had no interest in becoming one of God's people. He builds a new city. I guess he lived there by himself for a while, but he names it Luz. He just wanted everything back the way it was. He didn't want any change. This God who he believed was empowering people to conquer, this God who spoke and appeared at the old city that he had lived at, this God who was merciful and gracious and loving enough to allow him and his family to be saved from death, he didn't want to have any relationship or interaction or, or, or touch with this God. Yeah, I don't want any of that. He just w- wanted things to go back to the way they were. I'm just going to go build the city of Luz. I want to build the same street that I lived on so I can have the same life apart from this God. I don't want to be bothered. I've got my own worldly pursuits going on, my own desires. And what's sad is that you can really see the potential this guy had. He clearly was a man of strength and means and ability. He built a city but his heart panted after the things of this world despite how God had shown him grace and mercy. Pastor and Bible commentator John Corson remarks on this fellow. He says, this man built another city just like the one that had been destroyed. The same thing still happens. When people go through hard times, they receive the blessing and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, but then they soon find themselves going back to the old areas, rebuilding the old cities and doing the old things once again. If the Lord has touched your life, if he has called you into his kingdom, if he has brought you into his family, when things start getting easier, don't give in to the temptation of saying, I don't have to be as intense anymore. I can sort of kick back. I can go back up to Hittite country where I came from and kind of rebuild old ways. Don't do it. God wants to do something with each of us and every one of us has potential because God is a God who is able. We serve a God who is a God of power and ability. If you're not a Christian, the Lord is very graciously offering you mercy before the coming destruction. But you have to accept his mercy and his grace in this life by turning from your sin and believing on him and allowing him to come in and and be your Lord. But for those of us who are Christians here today, we find in the scriptures that we live a life of opportunity. Why? Because God is always working. He's always reaching. He's always developing his people and his plan. He has an inexhaustible supply for his extravagant plan to use you and to change you, to conform you into his image. Now, when we read the Bible, we see and we know God has a plan. We know his desire is to complete the good work that He started in each of our lives. And here's what else we know from His word. We know that God has set His heart on us and visits us every morning, Job seven eighteen. We know that God's mercies are new every morning, Lamentations three twenty three. We know that the Lord never fails, and every morning he brings his justice to light, Zephaniah three five. And so the Bible declares that God is always ready to reach down and invade our lives, to be our arm in our salvation. He's always ready to direct us and give to us and use us. He is not slack. He is not forgetful or neglectful. He's at the ready. He's like Caleb in our text, a conqueror, excited to share his victory with us and direct our lives and lavish upon us gifts so that we can change the world around us right where we're at. And so here are two quick closing thoughts for us this morning. First, seeing these two examples. Let's be mindful of what God is doing In your life right now, God wants to do things. He is doing things. And so we can be mindful of that by remembering that life is more than earthly things. There is a heavenly perspective to everything that's happening in your life right now. The good, the bad, the easy, the hard, whatever circumstances, situations, relationships, there is a heavenly perspective as the Lord looks down upon your life and sets before you good works to walk in. And as we commune with the Lord and let the mind of Christ be in us as the Bible commands, we will see the opportunities that are presented to us by the Holy Spirit in those circumstances to be used and to be ministered to. And second, when these opportunities come to receive from the Lord or to do His work, new ministry, or to obey in some way, take them, take the opportunity, seize upon them in faith, When we come to an opportunity to do God's will, we must do it even if it seems difficult and even if it doesn't overlap with what we thought we wanted. Thomas Edison once said this. I love this quote. Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like hard work. I think that can certainly be true in our walk with the Lord as we see things and they are dressed in the sort of frivolity of the temporal life and we forget that there is a heavenly perspective and there is a mind of Christ and as we see things the Lord, the way the Lord wants us to see them, we see these incredible opportunities and they're able to be ministered to and minister to others we can be cheered by the reminder that anything God asks us to do, he will empower us to do it. He will supply the springs of water we need to bear the fruit he desires for us. And so today is the day the Lord has made And in our day, he will present each of us with opportunities to receive from him and to be a part of his will. The Lord wants to work in your life. He's very public about that. He wants to grow you and use you. He made today so that he could do something marvelous with you. That's what he says in his word. We must respond and invite him in. Trust him, follow him, be a man or woman of opportunity for the Lord and you will please the heart of God. You will receive life more abundantly that Jesus Christ talked about, being made more complete and satisfied by the grace of God and his mighty power. Let's pray.